morning we're going to read Numbers chapter 20 together. You can turn there. Way back in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 records an incident while you're turning there, which many of you might be familiar with. It took place during the time when the nation of Israel was finishing a long stretch in the wilderness after coming out of slavery in Egypt. And they were about to move into the land God had promised them, which of course is the same place that they, the nation of Israel occupies today. Uh, in case you're not familiar with these things, if the Bible is a little bit of a foreign land to you, what we're about to read this morning records something that happened somewhere between probably about 1300 to 1500 BC. It's that old. So you're talking three, you know, 3300 to 3500 years ago. The descendants of a man named Abraham had traveled to Egypt, same place as the Egypt today. And over the years, their population had grown in Egypt to probably the size of about a modern city. That's about how many there were of them. And that population growth had scared the Egyptians. They were living in their land, and they just exploded in terms of population. And the Egyptians had forced Israel into slavery. But God had made promises to Abraham that his descendants would inhabit the land of Canaan, as it was called then. And God kept his promises. And so he sent Moses to lead the people and God rescued Israel out of slavery with huge miracles. You can see several movies about that. And uh, he took them out to bring them into the land that he had promised them. And along the way, in that journey, the people had issues uh, where they refused to trust God. And they refused to follow his instructions. Specifically, the big one was they refused the command to go in and possess the land when they had their shot the first time. And so under God's judgment, they ended up wasting 40 years in the wilderness. What we're going to read about in Numbers 20, that incident, was one of the things that happened towards the end of that time. Uh, and so let's read together, and then we'll pray. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water, and thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals." So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rod twice. St sorry, struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word, a light for our feet, and your voice, Lord, here for us, your word to us in your scriptures. We pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, Lord, and obey. Pray you help me not to get in the way of anything you want to say, Lord. And pray you speak to all of us. We're your people, Lord, and we thank you for your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we look at this passage, I just want to make two points about how the Bible tells us to understand parts of the Bible like this, where we're reading history. And I mean, you can read it as just history, as an ancient account from a 3,000-year-old culture. And there are some interesting things you could learn, I guess, about an old culture or something. But the Bible itself tells us how to read stories like this, which means that God helps us see what he wants us to learn through them. First, Jesus said that the Old Testament writings spoke of him. You can find that in Luke chapter 24. You can find that in John chapter 5, at least those two places. So along with the historical point of these stories, they also tell us about Jesus. That's actually part of the history. Because the point of the history and the way God had it recorded was to get to Jesus. The point of Israel's history was to bring forth the Messiah to rescue all of humanity. And second then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes that in these stories, we can find examples which teach us all kinds of things. He doesn't mean when he writes that, that every person we read about is a good example to follow or that everything that happens is something we should imitate. But the word he uses in the passage means something like pattern. There are patterns in these stories which help us understand our own lives because so much of what is written in the Old Testament actually conforms to the same kinds of things that we go through. You just swap out some technology, and you can see there's just a lot of the same things that we're going to actually encounter in life. And again, not so much always patterns to imitate, but patterns in the, in the, in the text to, to read our own lives through would be the idea. Types, pictures of things and people and situations that we're going to run into as we walk with God in this world. And so you could say that the history in the Bible gives us Lenses, you could use that way of thinking about it. Lenses to look through to understand our own lives. So this that we just read in Numbers 20 is one of those stories. Something that happened towards the end of Israel's long wandering in the wilderness. Just before they got ready to go inherit the homeland that God was giving them. But we'll see here as we read through again that the process of actually inheriting the homeland was not what we might call flawless. Uh, So you look again at chapter 20 verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So, again, Moses at this point was God's appointed leader of the people at this time. God had raised him up to be the human instrument through which God did things that freed Israel from Egypt. And then Moses, after that, led Israel the entire time that they were in the wilderness. And he exercised his leadership by being the main channel through which God spoke to Israel. So the way it worked was God would tell Moses his plan, and then Moses would tell the people. God himself had set set that system up. That was God's way of doing things. And there was a time, some of you know, when God broke the pattern, and he spoke directly to the people from the top of a mountain. Imagine how loud that voice must have had to have been. And when he did that, it freaked the people out so bad that they sent representatives to Moses and asked if they could go back to the old system where he just told them what God said, right? We just go back to that old system. And now you see here in verse 1, Miriam 
was Moses' sister. So part of what her death represented was a turning of the page and the ending of the generation who had come out of Egypt and the coming of age of a new generation who would see the promises of God come true. And it, it really, that whole time that was about to end had been, one way to say it would be an amazing time because even though there was a huge number of people, again, maybe two million, and even though it was the desert, full of dangers, full of enemies, and even though they were only there that long in the desert, the wilderness, because of their flat refusal to go into the promised land when God first tried to give it to them, even with all of that, God had established a pattern of providing for them the whole way. And he had told them how long this wandering would take. So all they had to do was pay attention to his plan as he had revealed it, and they could draw strength from the fact that this part of the journey was almost over. However, whatever their sense had been of the fact that this, this time they were approaching the end of this time, the immediate stresses they were facing still hadn't gone away. And that's what we see as we continue reading. If you look at verse 2, it says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Anytime you get one of these lists, it's always great to see what foods were on their minds. Um, This is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Some of them wanted pomegranates. Nor is there any water to drink, which is, we're going to find out, the the bigger deal, right? Now, you won't really see this if you just do what we're doing here this morning and you pick up reading right here in chapter 20. But if you were to back up in the book of Numbers, what you see is that God had been talking to the people through Moses in the days leading up to this situation. And what he had been doing was giving them his law. And you see that pattern through the whole book of Numbers, really. The Lord was talking to the people about how he was going to live in their midst and how they would need to order their worship and how they could deal with sin and the things that defiled them and create a separation between himself and them. But he keeps getting interrupted through the book by all these episodes of rebellion or lack of faith, situations where the people worry about something or they get angry about something and they refuse to trust God and they refuse to follow his instructions. In chapters 18 and 19, just before this, God had been giving details about how he wanted the priesthood and the tabernacle where they were going to worship him ordered so they could worship. And right on the heels of chapter 19, when that's what God's thinking about, chapter 20 breaks in. So in other words... God takes so much time, real care, setting up a system so that the people can have fellowship with him and so they can deal with sin. But all they care about is, where are we going to find water? Now, we'll come to that in a second. We all understand what a big deal water is. But as you read the story of Israel from the book of Exodus forward, one of the lessons that jumps off the page to you is that, to the Lord, finding food and water was no big deal. In Exodus 15, They faced a situation where their only source of water was contaminated, and the Lord cleansed the waters. In Exodus 16, they faced starvation from lack of food, and God made food literally appear miraculously on the ground. Depending on how you read the text, it might have fallen down out of the sky, right? Every morning. In Exodus 17, they had no water to drink at all. Remember, we're talking about maybe two million people here, and God made water come out of a rock, like we're reading this morning. Enough for all of them and all their animals to drink. He made quail fly down into the camp when they needed meat. He made a cloud spread out over them when they needed shade. And, and so that they didn't get lost in the wilderness, 
he led them with a giant pillar made of cloud or fire. So in other words, none of those issues were a big deal for God. They're all the kinds of things that press us to the limit. Big existential life crises like, I don't have any food, right? Real things. And they pushed Israel beyond their limits too. It's interesting that God was fine letting them run into those situations. And then he always provided what they needed. And part of what he was teaching them, I think, is that they didn't need to worry about any of those things because God could always handle any of their needs no problem. It's like effortless to him. And so that's why in their travels, what he was focusing his instruction on, his teaching, was sin and how seriously they needed to take it and what they needed to do to minimize its effects on their lives and their relationship to him. The big deal wasn't food and water. The big deal was sin and their ability to dwell in his presence. But they took all that for granted. That didn't worry them or concern them at all. Sin's no big deal. They worried about water. And the situation in these verses here is almost an exact repeat of the situation in Exodus 17. And when the water problem came up that time, the first time, what God had done was simply to bring Moses to a rock and have him hit the rock with his rod. That was God's instruction in Exodus 17. And the water flowed. And I think it's easy for all of us to read this story in Numbers 20 and think, why are they panicking? They've been down this road before. God can get water from a rock. They should know this. He'll take care of it. But the lesson was harder than that to learn. And of course, it makes you ask yourself, wait, why is this lesson so hard for me to learn? And as you read the history of Israel, again, one of the great discoveries that you make is how much God uses it to illuminate our own lives with him. How many times have we faced the same kind of situation for the second or third time, maybe the fourth or fifth time, and you find that it's hard not to panic again? even though God came through last time. And this sort of thing pops up in verse 5, too. Something important to notice in verse 5. They ask, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? But that's such an odd question if you're following the story. First of all, it wasn't Moses who had made any decision about direction at all. It was God. And they knew that. And maybe they were scared to blame God directly. And so they complained about their leaders. Maybe that's what was going on. But even more than that, their question assumes that God had freed them from Egypt so they could camp in the desert. But this place, the place where they were at, was absolutely not the place that God was bringing them to. God was bringing them into a good land. They were only in the desert because they had refused to enter the good land when God brought them there. And now, in this story, at this point, they were only in that place because it was a place God was bringing them through on their way to the good land. The desert was a place to travel through. It was a journey. It wasn't a destination. There are some great patterns for us here. In our own Christian journey, we can expect to get tested by the road God is taking us on through this difficult world. It's like a desert so often. But we need to remember that the reason that Jesus rescued us from slavery to sin was not necessarily so that we could have an awesome life here and now in this wilderness, but so he could bring us into his presence in glory forever. Whatever I'm going through now, it's not God's ultimate plan for me. His ultimate plan for me is to be with him in his kingdom in the new earth. And remembering that can help, help me keep my head, even on days when I'm not sure that I have what I need to survive. It would have helped Israel keep their heads right here. But they struggled here. 
And so you see the reaction to it Moses and Aaron had in verse 6. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So some kind of shining presence or weight of intense feeling, or probably both, happened right there in front of Moses and Aaron, and they knew it was God. Now, a lot of times when the glory of the Lord appeared after this kind of complaining of the people, it was because God was about to bring judgment. That's what it meant in Numbers 14 and 16, and a similar thing had happened in Numbers 12. So since that had been the recent history, we can assume that Moses and Aaron were gearing up for God to do that kind of thing again. But that's not what he said at all. And I wonder if what they heard surprised them. In verse 7, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. That's it. One commentator I read wrote this. He said, As in times past, they are prepared for an awesome display of God's presence and the scourge of his flaming judgment against the people who continually rebel against him despite repeated acts of mercy and grace. As I read that in the commentary, but that's not what it was at all. It was just God's voice. Just a couple things to do. You can't actually make all the water they need, Moses, but you can go get Aaron's rod, and you can go to the rock, and you can just talk to it this time. I wonder if God even told Moses what to say. It doesn't seem like it. It's like, what do I say, God? Ah, whatever you want. Right? You can almost imagine the scene. Look at verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. I wonder if Moses was stunned. Whatever he was feeling as he went and grabbed the rod, we can get a sense of his emotional state starting in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. So that's what Moses did. He lost control publicly. And he vented his anger at the people. I think as I read through Moses' life, this thing kind of comes as, it comes as a surprise, at least to me, as I'm reading, because up to this point in his story, I don't think we see that he had the capacity for this sort of thing. But here it is. And honestly, it's a little painful for me to read this you know, personally because I, I see a lot of myself in Moses right here. Uh, I mean, I think I can understand what happened with him. I bet he didn't even really know how mad he was when he started his speech. Maybe he was living in denial. But I bet... At least on the surface, he thought he was fine when he went and grabbed the rod and he made the walk to the rock. And maybe he didn't feel like it when he started speaking. No, here now, maybe he was good there. Or maybe not. Maybe he was stewing and he knew it. But either way, by the time he said you, it was all there. And it flared up and it flared out. And he, it seems like he screamed rebels. And he lost control. And then it was like the floodgates were open, and he vented it all, on the people, on the rock. And maybe it was like standing there for him like the rock was the people, and he just beat out his anger on that rock. And everyone must have felt and known exactly what was happening. Moses wants to beat us with that rod. He's had it with us. 
Just imagine being there like, what's going on? Maybe they've never seen him act like this before. Moses is really angry. Something like that. Which explains God's immediate sharp reaction. If you look at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And then the postscript, verse 13, This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now to feel the full impact of what God says in verse 12, you have to understand that Moses made his whole life up to this point all about leading the people into the promised land. When he was 40 years old, he walked away from wealth and power in Egypt to identify with his own slave people because they were his people and they were God's people. And 40 years after that, he left a life of, of quiet, you know, peace and safety in Midian because God told him to go back to Egypt and lead the people out. And he spent the next 40 years after that wandering in the wilderness with his people because they had refused to go into the land. And now that that time is almost over, he's finally going to see the land that this whole thing was about. His whole life. And after this episode at the rock, God told him, you see it there in verse 12, you're not going in now. So here's a quick question. Is God overreacting here? This is like a little trick question for Sunday morning, right? But it's good to ask ourselves this and make our brains work through it. This is how we learn. And this is how we learn to let God's thoughts shape our thoughts. Because if you read something like this, and you know, you're reading in the morning, you're trying to get something positive for your devos, right? Before you go to work and get attacked all day or something, right? Like, you know, I just need something. You know, you read this and there's that little voice that says something like, man, that's kind of harsh, right? And then the Christian part of you is like, no, God's always right. And then the other part's like, right? That little, maybe it's just, Maybe you don't have that. You don't even have that part, right? No, it's right there, though, right in that little back and forth that God helps us learn, actually. And so when you hit that kind of thing in the Bible, you pray and you back up and you read it again and you see what God might show you. So notice in verse 13, it says that when God provided water for the people, he was, it says, hallowed among them in my translation. Or your Bible might say, he showed himself to be holy. That's the idea. God was hallowed. He, he showed himself to be holy through the waters that came out of the rock. That's what it says. This is so interesting. God's holiness was seen in those waters flowing abundantly to a clueless, faithless people. Verse 13, the people quarreled with the Lord but he showed that he was holy. In other words, he showed that he was separate and above their petty complaining, their anxiety over daily provision, their faithless chatter. He wasn't above their need. That he was right there with, right? But he was above their arguments, above their spiritual amnesia. He was so above it and beyond it and removed from it. So not down in the muck of all the talk, that he could show it all up with a display of generosity and benevolence that shut it all down in a second. You need water? Sure. It's not a problem. Here you go. As much as you want, right? Just gushing out of the rock. All this, I think, is key. God was hallowed. God showed himself to be holy. That's verse 13. But the verse just before it, verse 12, tells us that God told Moses 
that that is exactly what Moses did not do. It says Moses did not believe in him to show that he was holy in the eyes of Israel. In other words, in front of the people of God, as God's leader and representative, the one who had heard God talk, Moses made it seem like God was right down in the middle of it all, not holy and above it at all, but right down in all the chattering, arguing, discontented trenches, taking a side, angry and frustrated like all the people. He's just another shouting, angry guy, fed up with everything. And maybe for Moses at this point, the whole water issue didn't even make him mad. But man, people, people are the worst. That was the vibe Moses gave off, right? But that didn't represent God at all. God wasn't mad. Isn't that fascinating? And if you've been reading the longer story, you might be surprised along with Moses. Wait, why wasn't God mad? I have to admit, as I was studying this and preparing to teach this passage, I felt myself wrestling with it all over again. It's not immediately clear why God didn't get mad here, but he did in other situations. So I decided to look at every time the people panicked and complained when they came out of Egypt and just see if there's a pattern. If I look at every time, let's see if we can, you can learn something. And you know what? There is a pattern. If I had been paying attention when I read, I would have seen it at first. And if Moses had been paying attention to this pattern he might have known what to expect in this situation. So if you, if you look at the pattern, you start back in Exodus 14, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to do it, and you can find it out yourself, when the people panicked by the Red Sea because Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them, this is what you see, starting there. Whenever they complain or worry because they're in real danger, even mortal danger, meaning they have a real need, God always delivers them without any judgment. You see it in Exodus 14. You see it in Exodus 15 and 16 and 17. Again, where the issues were that they had no drinkable water and no food or no water at all. Life and death things. But then in Numbers 11 and 12 and 14 and 16, they weren't complaining because they didn't have what they needed, but because they got tired of what God had provided to meet their needs. It just got old. The food or the water or the leadership. And in those times, God showed his wrath through some kind of judgment on the people. It was going to happen again in Numbers 21. But here in Numbers 20, this isn't one of those times. This is, again, a real need. Moses should have been alert to that. If he wanted to keep leading God's people effectively, he needed to know how the patterns that, that showed, how, he needed to know the patterns that showed how God worked or to make it maybe more applicable for all of us. If he wanted to be someone who could represent God to people, he needed to actually know God by knowing the history of how God dealt with people so that he could interpret the current events around him and know God's heart towards them. Because he hadn't noticed this, or because he had lost track of it, he failed to honor God. Verse 12 says that the root of the issue is that Moses didn't believe the Lord. God says, you didn't trust me to hallow me, to let the people see that I'm holy. The life of faith, the life of trusting God's way and God's plan, and therefore obeying God's word, is the way to demonstrate the holiness of God. And in order to lead God's people, Moses needed to exhibit that kind of life. And when he failed to do that at a key moment, he showed that he wasn't able to take them into the next phase of their history. And as hard as that must have been, as hard as that must have been for Moses to hear, it's important to remember that you know, God didn't send Moses to hell he didn't judge him with instant death. He didn't even remove him from leadership. Moses finished out his time, and he died in honor at 120 years old. But he wasn't the one to take Israel into the promised land. What he had done was that big of a deal. 
Our actions really do matter. Evidently, the world needs to see the holiness of God. They need to know both things, that God cares about our needs and he can provide, and that he's not caught up with our petty angriness, our disputes, our complaining. They need to see both. There's so much to learn here. Because if you were an Israelite that day, and all you knew of God was what you saw Moses do in verse 10, what would you think God was like? See Moses up there freaking out, slamming the rock, screaming. That's convicting, right? But what would you think God was like if you had been panicking and complaining and you had no idea how you were going to get water for your family and you saw Moses get up and just say something to a rock and water gushed out? That was the picture that God wanted the people to have. God, easy to approach. God, the generous giver. God who cares. God who takes care of us even when we're a mess. God who's strong when we're weak. God who's holy. Holy and above and uncorrupted and therefore willing and able to help in our time of need. And maybe you're here today and you don't actually know God. Maybe you don't know this God. The Bible says that God knows you and he wants you to know him. And for you and for all of us, there's a really important picture here. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote that the rock that followed people was Christ. And that's too big and mysterious to get into at the end of a Bible study like this. But it tells us that part of what Moses did wrong here was wreck the picture that God was painting for everyone. Because the first time this happened, back in Exodus 17, and God brought water from a rock for the people, God did tell Moses to hit the rock. Strike the rock and the water will flow. But here in Numbers 20, the rock was already struck. And that was why this second time, Moses only needed to speak. And when you come to God, you need to know that you can come thirsty and that Jesus was already struck. He was already bruised for our sin. He suffered and died on the cross and he bore the wrath of God for our sin and he died in our place and he rose again from the dead to show that anyone who believes in him can be forgiven for their sin. Because remember the first thing Israel forgot. There was a bigger issue than being thirsty. If you don't know Christ today, whatever has been stressing you out this week or worrying you, there's a bigger issue. Bigger than your finances or all these wars going on or even your health or your kids. Bigger than all that is this problem. Your sin separates you from God. And all of God's efforts are bent at taking that problem away. So Jesus died on the cross for your sin and he rose again from the dead. And if you come to him, all you have to do is ask and something better than water flows out. Forgiveness. New life. God's Holy Spirit into your heart. That's God's desire for everyone who doesn't know it yet. Ask Christ to save you and forgive your sins because he was struck for you. And the water of God's cleansing will flow to you. I just want to read two passages as we wrap up here from the Gospel of John, where we've been studying with Pastor Joe. Jesus said these things, and you'll hear the parallels, and these are the words of Christ for everybody here today. John chapter 7. It says, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. And John chapter 4, Jesus said this, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. And all we have to do is ask. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the display of your heart toward us, Lord. We are your people. And each of us could lament the times that we've panicked or complained or worried or even vented our anger. But we thank you, Lord, that you have been faithful to show us that you're the Father who loves to good, give good gifts, Lord. And you don't stop with salvation, but you pour out in your spirit and in your goodness everything we need for life and godliness. So we come to you this day and we ask, Lord, fill us with your spirit. You know the water that we need, Lord, to make it through our journey. And we thank you that we know that you love to give it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.